Welcome to Voices of Experience for September 2009. I'm your host, Jared Bro, And this year, our theme is Imagine. We want you to imagine all that your speaking business and speaking career can be. And to do that, we hope to bring together to you some of the best thought leaders in the speaking industry. Later in this program, we'll hear from two of my favorite, including a visit from Canada from Jane Atkinson, author of The Wealthy Speaker. She'll be one of our segment producers this year, as will be Joe Calloway, CSP and CPAE, and the author of Becoming a Category of One. All that I ask is that you stay open to changing your life by changing your mind one day at a time. Open your mind. To kick things off, let's go for a ride. Speaker and author, CSP Robert Little of Jackson, Mississippi, imagined that he could make a living by driving across 13 southern states in the U.S. and reading the books that he writes to school children. On the day that I caught up with Robert, he was booked to do eight presentations at eight different schools. That means if I wanted to do an interview with Robert, we would have to record the interview in the car while he was driving from school to school. So, buckle your seatbelts and ride along with us. If I can dream it! If I can dream it! Then I can do it! Read a lot, dream big, and work hard. Bye-bye! 11 years ago, when I decided to go into the professional speaking arena on a full-time basis, I wanted education to be my focus, but it took a little while to get to, uh, to where I am today, obviously. But my whole purpose is to inspire and to motivate kids to do their very best, and what I do is assembly programs for kids pre-K through the 12th grades, focusing on improving self-esteem, making good choices, and expecting to succeed in life. Of course, I weave literacy into all of my presentations, being that I'm an author. But in addition to that, I do professional development with teachers and parent involvement presentations. So when I visit school districts, typically I'm there for a day, sometimes a couple of days, as in this case. And that way I have an opportunity to generally speak with the students during the day, uh, the teachers in the afternoon, and uh, something for the parents during the evening in terms of sharing with them practical things that they can do to help their children to be more successful in school. Joining us on our ride, and occasionally calling out directions from the back seat, is Janice Wilson, the Director of Elementary Curriculum for the school district. Janice, how's it going so far? Great. It's going great. Very motivational. Students are actively involved. 
How'd, how'd you guys come across Robert? How'd you find him? Um, find out about him? Years ago, I think I heard uh, Mr. Little speak at, to the right, um, a conference in Jackson. Keep straight. And uh, we were looking at having speakers lined up for the duration of the year, talking about motivational speakers, uh, speakers that have um, information on diversity. And I thought about Mr. Little, so invited him in. Explain the 11 state tour concept and, and how those pieces go together. And take a right here. Yes. Uh, what I do, Jared, we do mail outs to schools in 11 states. And the way that it works, the schools that call in to book me first are the ones that I will actually visit. And I will allocate an entire week to be in a state. And it works out fairly well that way in the sense that it reduces my time traveling, obviously, and the cost associated with traveling. So that's what, uh, this is my second year in doing that, and uh, it's working out quite well. Now, when you go state to state, you're pretty much loading your car with books and driving? On quite a few of those states, uh, some I actually have to fly. On most occasions, I do drive, however, depending on the schedule, I will fly periodically, of course, then rent a car, and of course, that requires shipping books in advance. But uh, whenever possible, I will just drive and just load my vehicle with books. And How many books do you normally travel with, and how many do you end up shipping? And Ooh. I mean, I, I'm looking at the back of your SUV here. This sucker is just filled to the rim with publications. <laughs> It is. Uh, it, it really varies. Uh, what we do, we have an emailable flyer that will email to principals, media specialists, up to a couple of weeks, sometimes a month, month and a half in advance, for them to make copies of, and they'll send them home with the kids, uh, telling the parents about my books, and specifically the children's picture books, <clears throat> uh, with a brief description of each one and letting them know that I will be at the school on a particular day and that my books will be available. You have 30 minutes here. Really? Okay. All right, good. So that, that works out well for me, and what we do uh, is offer the books and make them available to the children at a reduced price, typically about half price. And it's kind of a win-win situation because it allows the children to have their autographed, accelerated reader book. Of course, I have an opportunity to go in to speak with the kids and inspire them and motivate them as well. You're on. Okay. Thank you. When I was in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, I had three things I had to do every day. First thing was this. In my house, we did not have central heat. So in the wintertime, I could not hit a switch on the wall and heat would come out of the vents. That didn't happen in my house. In fact, in my house, the only way we could heat it was with the fireplace. Okay, so it was my responsibility to chop wood to carry it in to make sure we had wood to burn at night and in the mornings before school. I had to chop wood. Second thing, we didn't have running water. We didn't have indoor plumbing. We did not have a bathroom in the house. Yeah, it was pretty tough. And on a cold night, you had to make a major decision. I mean, that was just the way it was. But all of the water that we used to drink, all of the water that we used to take a bath with, had to carry it. 
I was in the first and second grade, I had a little small bucket. By the time I got to the sixth and seventh grade, I had a five-gallon bucket. By the time I got to the 10th, 11th, 12th grade, they said, Robert, you're big enough. You can carry two buckets now. So I had to carry two five-gallon buckets. By the way, students, that's how I got my big muscles, okay? Now, how many of you are going to go home and start carrying water? <laughs> no, hands down, hands down. If you don't have to, don't do it, don't do it. But the third thing, we had some cows. Yeah, cows. And no, no, I didn't milk the cows, but I had to feed them. I had to feed them corn, I had to feed them hay, I had to feed them whatever my mama told me to feed them. So every day I had to chop wood, carry water, feed cows. Say it with me. Chop wood, carry water, feed cows. One more time. Chop wood, carry water, feed cows. And students, today I understand exactly why my mama made me do those things. It has everything in the world to do with discipline, has everything in the world to do with hard work. Two key ingredients that have been necessary in order for me to go on to make my dreams come true, two key ingredients that are necessary in order for each and every one of you to go on to make your dreams come true. Tell me about your approach to both humor and interactivity with kids. Mm. Well, I discovered earlier on that <laughs> kids are very honest. <laughs> if they're bored, they're going to let you know that you, you know, they're bored. If they don't believe your story, they're going to let you know that. But I'm very honest with them. I share with them uh, the true stories that have happened to me in my life, but I also want them to be involved. So what I try and do, I use a little humor. I also try and keep up to date on some of the things that kids are involved with today, some of the people that they may look up to or the kind of music that they're listening to or some of the, their favorite artists. And of course, having them to be involved in the presentation, I want them to have so much fun that they forget that they're learning. And that's been the key for me. Tell me a little more about your childhood because you don't hear too many people talking about having to carry in buckets of water, <laughs> having an outhouse, <laughs> chopping wood. Tell me about your childhood. Yeah. Well, those are actually all things that uh, are true, and I share those uh, stories with children. And in essence, what I'm saying to them is that, yeah, this is where I came from. Those are the kinds of things I had to do in order to be the person that I am today. And I don't share that uh, in hopes of gaining anyone's sympathy. In fact, quite frankly, today I'm, I'm quite proud of those experiences because those are the kinds of things that have shaped me into being the person that I am on today. One of the problems or one of the difficulties, challenges every speaker faces is that whole idea of do I fish or cut bait? Mm -hmm. Do I market or do I work? How do you <laughs> balance? When do you find time to do your marketing? Do you have a, a down season, so to speak? Well, I do marketing um, during the tour as well because I'm not booked week after week. I usually will try and make a, a week available about every three weeks to a month so I can do some marketing there. But a lot of my marketing is actually done during the summer months where I'll speak at conferences um, at the national level or at the state level, uh, keynotes or I'll do breakout sessions or some conferences I'll go and just simply promote my books and upcoming tour. So typically during the summer months or the time when I do the bulk of my marketing, but we do mass mailings generally at the beginning of the year and some marketing is done throughout the year as well. Tell me about staff. Do you have any staff? 
I do in the sense that uh, I have people answering my phones. I do a lot of outsourcing, and I've found that to be really, really good for me, particularly with my schedule. I used to, and, and from time to time, still employ some college students to help from time to time, but um, I do most of the outsourcing in terms of people that are, are answering my phones, uh, people that obviously do editing and um, illustrations, um, graphic design work, printing, all of that is actually outsourced. Um, so that's, you know, basically I am it in terms of, of the person that does most of the things, but we have outsourcing available for the, you know, the other kinds of things that I need done. Tell me a little bit about your writing process. Well, it is, I see writing and speaking as being hand in hand. In the beginning, I wanted to go into schools to motivate, to inspire kids to do their very best. Then I thought, well, how can I possibly motivate and inspire them long after they've heard me speak? And then I thought, well, what about the millions of kids that will never, ever hear me speak? How can I possibly inspire and motivate them? Now, my very first book, What Can I Be?, was actually meant to be about a 90 or 100 page book and the reason I started to write this book was because I wanted to address issues that I was hearing from kids all over the country in terms of them telling me why they cannot go on to make their dreams come true but 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 and that is the case with what can I be the little guy Jamal is thinking all of these reasons as to why he cannot make his dreams come true and the reality is there are going to be obstacles for all of us I mean, they're going to be there but they do not have to be insurmountable obstacles. In fact, they're there to make us stronger and bigger and better as individuals. What are your dreams? What have you not done in your business that you'd like to build into the, your, your business model? Well, my focus right now is the eastern part of the U.S. I would like to, to do this nationwide. I, I do speak nationwide now, but only uh, on invitations is not a part of the, the tour. I know that I have uh, a program that is needed and is very much appreciated in schools and it is one in my opinion that I'd love to be able to get nationwide. You know I wake up each and every morning being grateful for being able to do what I love doing and to call it my profession and you know there are not many people that can do that, can wake up and say you know this is what I do and this is what I love doing and I can call it my profession. I, I know many people that would love to just drive right past their job on a daily basis, and I'm blessed and fortunate to not be one of those. I love doing what I do, and many times people will ask me, you know, why do you work so hard, and why do you do upward of maybe 180 to 200 engagements a year? It's because I love doing what I'm doing. And I have uh, letters that I sometimes share with my audience members when I'm doing professional development. I ask myself, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? But I have letters from students, from children all over the country that serve as a reminder as to why I'm doing what I'm doing. I can read those letters and then the question is no longer, why am I doing what I'm doing? The question becomes, why am I not doing more? In the words of that great American poet and philosopher Scott Freeman, it looks like Robert Little is still enjoying the journey. One of the segments we're going to do this year is hosted by Joe Calloway, author of the book Becoming a Category of One. And what I thought would be cool is to ask Joe to profile speakers who are one of a kind. So to start with, Joe, tell me a little bit about 
the thought process that you have on becoming a category of one, the genesis for the book, and then how we're going to profile these speakers. You know, I wish everybody could see the cover of the book because the cover explains the concept. There's a, there's a bowl full of green apples, and right in the middle of it is a red apple. You want to be the red apple. Where in this case, people say, yeah, there's thousands of speakers out there, and there's only one fill in the name. And so what I did with this was picked out some people uh, that could, could fill in that blank, that they truly, through the way they've approached their career, the way they've differentiated, they really stand out as a category of one. Well, when we look for this first red apple, when we look to fill in this first blank, I find it uh, somewhat ironic for a speaker organization that this first person has formal training as a mime. Tell yeah, me about it. I know. Yeah, the, from mime to speaker. Actually, here's the thing about our first guest. Uh, she's got training as a, as a mime. She's been in commercials. She's an actress. She does um, a lot of what's known as really performance art, and she is an absolute wizard on stage. I, I, as many times as I've seen her work, I watch her and I just, my mouth drops open at what she does and the way she's able to absolutely captivate an audience. And the fill in the blank is Victoria LaBombe. Yes. So a day for you might look something like this. Sleep. Wake up, get undressed, get in the shower, get dressed, hug your spouse, walk the dog, have breakfast with the kids, send the kids off to school and drive to work while listening to your messages, checking your Blackberry and guzzling coffee. It's very safe. <laughs> you get to work, you check your email again, you check your voicemail. Your son calls, he left his hockey sticks and skate in the back of your car. You gotta drive to his school, drop them off and get back to your desk. You're back at your desk, you're trying to eat lunch while you're at your desk to make up for lost time. And finally, it's the end of the day, and you change your clothes and you go to the gym, you've got the bicycle treadmill, Pilates, Pilates. <laughs> Breathe, bicep, bicep, triceps, ab, bicep, bicep, triceps, ab. Then you go home, you hug your spouse, you walk the dog, you have dinner with the kids, you send the kids off to bed, you change your clothes, you get in bed, you channel surf, you call your friend, you read your book on spirituality, you check your Blackberry one more time, and you go to sleep. That was a good day. <laughs> Years ago, in my 20s, I was struggling with what career I would have because all my friends were going off to be lawyers and doctors and they were starting to get married and I was still very uncertain about my path. And it was a real challenge for many years. I was an actor and I was a writer and a performing artist and a comedian and a filmmaker and a dancer and a mime and I couldn't quite find my place. And there was a moment I was sitting with my mother and I just burst into tears and she put her arms around me and she said, your gifts will bring you home. If you think about a motivational speaker and then you think about a performing artist or an actor or comedian, well, I do motivational speaking but through acting and comedy. Or sometimes I'll say, I take two disciplines that are not normally combined, and that leads to the question, what are those? And my response is, the corporate market with acting and comedy. Well, let's talk about that for a second because you do mix art and business. Where where did that come from? I mean, where did that idea bubble up in you? I think it comes in part from family history in the sense that uh, my great uncle was a man named Raymond Lowy. Some people listening may know. He was a 
big influence in the field of industrial design, created the Shell logo, BP logo, uh, the stripes on the Air Force One jet, many other logos, changed SO to Exxon with a double X in the line through it, and had a strong belief in the power of bringing art into business. Do you find when you talk to clients or bureaus or actually potential clients about this, is it a is it a tough sell? Do, do they do you see a lot of big question marks on their faces and they're going, okay, I don't quite understand how this I, is going to work. Yes, I definitely get that look, the tilted head, but with that look comes tremendous curiosity, and it always leads to more questions. Let me ask you a little about this. You, you're, who are your influences as far as people, either in art or business? that have influenced how you do what you do? I'd say the majority of my mentors and uh, artistic influences come from outside of the speaking industry. So for me, it's musicians uh, like Mark Knopfler, who I feel is continually pushing the boundary of where he stands. And Mark Knopfler, some people know as being from Dire Straits. Correct. He was the leader of that. That's exactly right. Uh, People like Picasso, who kept, again, pushing the limits of art and try new forms. I think we can get so stuck in doing the same thing. And you look to these greats, even someone like Paul Simon, who stayed current by changing his style. Mm-hmm. To bring it back to speaking, and and I'm going to throw a little, not devil's advocate, but maybe even a little of my own opinion here on this. Do you think speakers, as a rule, could be better at what they do if they would think more of themselves as writers? Yes, and I'll answer that in two ways. I think a great mistake, and this is my personal opinion, of course, that I see is that people write out word for word their speech to a point where it's not a spoken art form, because those are two different art forms, the Mm -hmm. written word and the spoken word. And I think there's tremendous value in crafting your language carefully, and I'm a huge advocate for that. comes from a background of poetry for me. However, I think you need to find an organic voice, and that comes from being on your feet. So I call it page and stage. You want to write and then speak and then write and then speak and make sure that it's always true to your natural speaking rhythm. I do think those speakers are lazy when it comes to word choice and what in the poetry world we call economy, so that each word adds a dimension, gives a visual description, so you're not saying, you know, that thing that, um, you know, it's specific and potent. Looking back over, because you started out as a performer, you've acted, done commercials, all that, and then all of a sudden, you end up in the business world doing corporate performances. Was there a light bulb going on over your head moment, a year? Was there a flashpoint period where you said, wait, I'm on to something here? I... Well, it's such a funny question. It's when you started to ask that, I thought of the opposite, which is when I had a first meeting down at Smith Barney, and I, someone had gotten me this meeting way before I was ready for it, and the executive was interviewing me, and he said, well, for example, the penal. And he's, I thought he said penal, but he said P&L, because it was a term I'd never heard. And I knew I was so out of my league, and people were talking about prospect or sales calls, and I thought a sales call was literally picking up the telephone. I didn't understand. So the learning curve to me was huge. I think the light bulb went off when I landed some very big clients early on through sheer luck and and preparedness. And it was they who taught me where my greatest asset lay. 
And the fact that I didn't come from a business background was something I thought was a liability. And however, it turned out to be a great asset because it was clients like Starbucks who came up to me and said, well, what we love about you is that you are an artist. Or when a CEO came up to me and he said, you know that mime thing you were talking about on stage? Can you do that for my directors in a separate group? He didn't ask me to speak about the three points of leadership, which isn't my expertise. That's a huge lesson. How often do you think those of us in the speaking business get in trouble by trying to be something we're not? Oh, a lot. A lot. And I know one of the questions you thought about asking is what would make me turn down a full fee? Right. I was coming it, to that. And uh, it would be if it was outside my area of expertise because it's, it produces so much anxiety. And it's not good for you, it's not good for the client, it's not good for the bureau if the bureau's booked you. You know, we all say, or a lot of people say, we learn more from our failures than our successes. Has anything not worked, Victoria? Uh, well, two very funny incidents come to mind. Uh, one is when um, I hadn't considered properly my audience. And, and that's a big thing for me. I think about their timing, where they're at in the day. But I had a very funny film I'd been showing in some of my keynotes, which is uh, of a homeless man dancing and singing on the street. And I talk about appreciation for life. And I had the NYPD as a client. And I thought, oh, this will be hilarious. And th this is my third year running with them. And so I showed them this film. And the room went silent. And the lieutenants were in there. And I suddenly realized this was an embarrassment to them. Because here I was showing where they had failed to a certain extent in cleaning up the city streets. And that was a real lesson. Uh, the other one is I'm a big fan of not buying any new clothing for a performance because you have to try out that clothing. However, I'd forgotten my own lesson, which was don't ever perform without rehearsing in your performance clothes at some point. And so I'd done this, I was doing this bit at the time on life balance, and I had practiced this yoga pose where I could literally stand on stage with one leg. Yeah, you already see where this is going, our sound man here. And I'm standing on, st on stage with one leg, and I've got my arm out, and I've got this amazing balance. I've rehearsed this for hours, and I can stand still for 30 seconds, a minute without budging. But the day of the show, I finally put on my high heels, which is a pair of high heels I've worn a lot, but I had not rehearsed this move with heels on. Mm -hmm. And I am there with 500 people in the audience. A bureau had come to watch me, brought a future client. And I'm talking about how still I can be on stage. And I am flailing around like a complete idiot. And I thought, I will never do this again. Slapping your arms. <laughs> oh, see it. it was just a nightmare. So don't ever wear something on stage you have never worn. You will split at the seam at the wrong seam. You will pop a button. You will sweat like a banshee. You, you, you know what, though? The takeaway lesson that I hear in both of those is that it's like the old saying, all battles are won or lost before the battle is fought. And both of those had to do with what happened before you got on stage. Yeah. Welcome home. Thank you. You're a category one. Thank you, Joe. A few years ago, I was listening to VOE, which is my favorite part of being an NSA, and I heard Jane Atkinson on VOE. And we were looking for somebody to come speak to NSA New Orleans, and as soon as I heard Jane's segment, I picked up the phone, called the program chair, and said, find this woman. She's got a book called The Wealthy Speaker. Jane, tell me a little bit about your background, how this book came to be, and, and what this concept is behind the whole Wealthy Speaker platform. 
Well, the short story is that uh, speakers would approach me. I, I was an agent for uh, professional speakers, I think, for over 10 years. And uh, people would approach me almost on a weekly basis and say, Jane, can I buy you lunch? I want to pick your brain of how you made so-and-so successful. <laughs> and uh, so I... I thought to myself, hmm, you know, someday I think I'm going to charge for this information. So what is the concept behind how you define the wealthy speaker? You you took a, a percentage of, of those who are just doing phenomenal work. My, I looked at the top 3% speakers and uh, the, typically were people who were earning more than a million dollars per year in speaking fees. And I analyzed that and decided to write the book based on those people and the traits that they had. Um, in my own 10 plus year career in the industry, everything I knew just basically went down on paper. So it made you a coach? I became a coach as a result. I was a coach before I wrote the book, but as um, my coaching got a lot more focused, I created a ready, aim, fire process in the book, which is the structure for everything I do in my business now. Ready is let's get crystal clear on what we're selling. Aim is let's roll that focus out into our marketing materials and then we fire and the problem that i was seeing all along was that people were out there just firing off sales strategies <laughs> firing off marketing ideas let's do postcards this month hey we'll do the email campaign next month <laughs> with no rhyme or reason or strategy behind it so the ready aim fire approach is really the foundation for everything i do and will become the foundation for the um the voe segments that we are doing uh this year. Well, one of the things we're asking Jane to do is to look not at the wealthy speakers, but we're asking Jane to look at those who have the potential to achieve greatness or to certainly go from one level where they are now to the next. So we're going to call this segment Ones to Watch. These are people that you may have never heard of in NSA, but we're going to go out on a limb and say, watch these people because they're starting to do the right things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Who was your first pick? Well, Renee Godefroy is someone who has done, in my mind, uh, above and beyond what it takes to really go to the next level each time as a professional speaker. He has done the work, and uh, what we'll see coming up is exactly what he did so that people at home listening can take that advice and start to apply it to their own careers. Tell me a little bit about Renee's background. I know he came from Haiti. He's an immigrant, but he's got a very colorful story to go with it. Absolutely. Um, basically, he smuggled himself into uh, America and uh, really started by, he had to learn the language and uh, rose up and up and up through the ranks and um, did various jobs, but every job that he did, he did it to the nth degree. He did it extra well. As he did a car washer. As a car washer. Doorman. As a as a, uh, a home care expert. As a doorman. He was the best doorman that the the hotel had, and uh, he would see speakers on his on their way through the hotel, and that's how he started to become inter interested in the industry. I want to meet this guy. Let's talk to him. I talk about the concept of going an extra mile in everything you do to overserve your market. And that's the key to success. That's what I bring to my audience. As you know from 
a small village in Haiti in extreme poverty to who I am today. And since I came to this country, that's what I had to do in everything I did. Whether I was a doorman carrying bags at a hotel or I was washing cars on the street in anything. So that's the thing. That's the message that I bring to my audiences. So you have quite an American success story. Uh, in the speaking world, of course, that's what our listeners are most interested in. You have gone uh, through several different points in your career. How long did it take when you first got started to really hit kind of that first hurdle, that first flashpoint? Well, first I started moonlining with it, like uh, a lot of people starting out. Uh, I was a doorman for many years at the hotel, carrying bags and helping people. I was meeting all the speakers and eventually attended my first conference for the National Speakers Association. And then I decided to go full-time, and, um, uh, and uh, it was difficult, it was hard, but once I did that, it took me about uh, four years into the business, uh, fumbling around, not knowing to do, very confused, um, doesn't know much, uh, trying to do it on my own instead of seeking uh, for help. And then after four years is when I really uh, found out, so to speak, the secret what makes this thing work, uh, for me at least. Hmm. Well, share with us what, uh, what exactly is that secret? What it was is uh, I had to come to a point to decide which way I want to go, which market I want to speak to, and then uh, that I'm, I can be all things to all people. You know how people have different topics, they talk on customer service, leadership, and whatever else. Well, I decided I was going to talk about going an extra mile, which is peak performance to over-serve and over-deliver in everything you do. Once I did that, it became clear to me, then uh, everything just started falling in place. So once you picked a lane, you got focused. What was one of the next steps that happened that kind of came up into this flashpoint? Well, I came to you and I said, Jenna, I'm so confused. And you look at my website and you say, your website is screaming motivational speaker, motivational speaker. You need to be an expert. And uh, I started thinking about it. So I decided, well, peak performance and change management was a thing for me, but I focused more on peak performance because of the concept that I uh, talk about. Then I uh, went to the website and I looked at it and you looked at the website and were like, oh no. <laughs> and and then the question you asked me, if you were you, would you hire yourself based on, and I wasn't really happy with my website. So I began to take everything, narrow it down and make sure the message is clear when they come to my website. And uh, I get a lot of business from my websites. I get a lot of traffic, but I was not getting the conversion that I needed until I started doing some of these things and people would watch my demo video. And of course, we went through the process of the demo video, which is very important in the business. Uh, starting out, it was very difficult. I didn't even know what a demo video was. I was just like a brand new baby in the business. But I seek out experts. Uh, I went to Lou Heckler, as you remember that. We talk about that based on your recommendations and uh, spent a weekend with him, working with him. And also I work with um, Robin Krishman and a bunch of people. I seek out the experts who had the answers for me. And like I said, starting out, I was trying to do it on my own, you know, fumbling in the dark and going to every session and trying a little bit of this and that. and. And uh, I think ultimately it's that focus, that narrow focus, and then the website. 
And then now people are coming to me say, hey, your website is a model for me. I want my website to be just like yours. Uh, not knowing the kind of work that I had to do with it. To get there. And then Jen, you know, I talk about this company. After we did all this, then uh, almost luck, or I don't know what you call it, I did this program for a company called Aflac. And uh, after that one speaking engagement, you know, working with Lou, you, Robin, and all the people, and uh, getting everything, so I really was uh, concise. I know what I was going to talk about, and I gave that one speech, and uh, he's talking about Flashpoint. Uh, the rest was history. I got uh, tw- I got booked for 20 states within that same year with one company, Aflac. Wow, wow. And I know that that's a speaker's dream come true. Let's go back to what you did in the presentation. You have a story of coming over from Haiti and, and how that all transpired and some of the things that you did, but you figured out a way through your coaching how to turn that around and make it about the audience. Yes. How important was that to your flashpoint? It was very important. Uh, Robin Krishman gave me this little idea, this little idea, which is a big idea indeed. I was uh, talking about my story for like 45 minutes in the keynote. Then uh, the last 25 years that I had been in America is really what the American audience is going to identify with. So what I did, I went to my keynote and take the story and condensed it to like 15 minutes. And then now I talk about being a uh, janitorial boy in Miami, wash, washing cars on the street, taking care of a Jewish man, Mr. Onovitz, and then people began to resonate with me a lot more. I began to connect with the audience at a deeper level. And you talk about that too, the connection with the audience. Uh, that's what did it for me. And I had a story that was very relevant to Aflac when I was a doorman, and it was like, I said, why don't I tell the story when they used to have the meeting uh, at the hotel? So the key is to make sure that you are, uh, whatever you're saying is relevant to the audience and you can connect with the audience or they can identify with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I have not really seen a lot of speakers take on technology the way that you took on technology. Go an extra mile is your motto, and you have done it basically in every portion of your speaking business. So let's talk a little bit about the the, the website and the technology and the things that you have done that you think helped you hit a flashpoint. Well, Jan, you know, when you come from a small village with $5, two shirts, one pair of pants, you don't speak English, and uh, you are a doorman carrying bags, and you want to compete with the big guys and well-known guys in the industry, and no meeting planner had ever heard of me. I just decided when I was parking cars, I would see the books on the back seat of the cars, and I was reading that, that those books, and I discovered that there was such a thing as being a motivational speaker, and I had the audacity to say, I want to do that. Now, the internet is a, a level playing field, and I discovered I can compete with anybody in the world on the internet, and I took my time, a lot of time, I mean, many hours, I invested learning about search engine optimization and uh, conversion and uh, opt-in and all that. And then I learned so much of that, then I began to compete. When you type the keywords, and I began to be number one, number three, four, keynote, inspirational speaker and all uh, on the internet. And I think this is not a fad. 
Okay, so let's just recap some of the walkaways here uh, for people, the takeaways. Number one, you picked a lane. Yes. Got very, very focused. No more long list of topics. Number two, you created that focus in your speech and you got coaching Robin Creaseman, Lou Heckler, very, very much uh, contributed to the success of your keynote going up to the next level. And then number three, you took the time, the really hard time, and put it in on the technology side and and were able to really, really uh, level that playing field for yourself. So the National Convention has just ended, and now you have a million new ideas of things you'd like to do. Should you write your first book? Should you write your next book? How can you build multiple streams of income? What should be your next big step in social media? And of course, how do you run an office, and should you have staff, and how do you manage staff? These are the kinds of questions and tasks that seem to be overwhelming for oh so many speakers. And a lot of times, when a task is overwhelming... Our response is, we do absolutely nothing. Well, it's been said that you can't eat an elephant in one bite. Rather, you have to eat the elephant one bite at a time. It's a metaphor that reminds us that the only way to accomplish these big tasks is to break them into many small tasks. So, drum roll, please. That brings us to a new segment called, If You Could Do Just One Thing This Month. We've assembled a group of experts on writing multiple streams of income, online networking, and running a better speaking business. And as the name of the segment implies, each month, this group will give you little small steps that you can take to accomplish some of your bigger and harder to manage goals. So if you could do just one thing this month. Hi, this is Bill Cates. My little segment for VOE this year will be focused on developing multiple streams of income for your business. As much as you love speaking, you're probably looking for other ways to leverage your expertise. The beautiful thing about developing multiple streams of income is that there is a synergy that happens. The different revenue streams feed off each other. Speaking creates opportunities for webinars and teleseminars. Speaking and webinars create opportunities for sale of your video training package. Your video training package can lead to licensing agreements. These are the kinds of things I'm going to cover in my segment for you this year. So if there's one thing you could focus on this month, it would be building your list. You want to develop the largest email list and mailing list possible. You'll probably want to have two lists, one of all the executives, meeting planners, and others in a leadership capacity, and the other for all the participants in your programs. The best way to build your list is to offer your clients, leaders, and attendees something of value. In our case, we have a weekly email newsletter for everyone, a monthly email newsletter for leaders, and we have a regular mailing list for our Magalog and other value-oriented mailings that we do on a monthly basis. Don't just mention the newsletter from the platform and expect people to go visit your website to sign up. Most won't take the time. Have a form for everyone to sign up for your newsletter, or have them hand you their business card. Here's what you can say from the platform. I just wanted to take a minute to call your attention to the piece of paper in front of you telling you about our free email newsletter. If you like the ideas I'm sharing here, then you're going to love the newsletter. Every week you'll get a quick tip, something you can implement right away to produce results. And if you like, you can always bounce back to me with your questions and your success stories. We don't share the list, trade the list, or sell the list. It's my relationship with you. Plus, if you hand in the form to me today, or just hand me your business card today, I'll also send you our new report entitled The Five Biggest Mistakes Salespeople Make and How to Avoid Them. 
When you build your distribution list, though you always lead with value, you can also begin to promote your webinars, teleseminars, boot camps, coaching, books, CDs, etc. So that's it for this month. Next month, I'll be talking to you about developing a system or a process that can take someone from point A to point B and produce a tangible result. This has been Bill Cates. Thanks for listening. Now go do something that produces a result. I'm Chris Clark Epstein, and it's time to talk about writing. There was a point when you decided to become a speaker. You recognized that you had some innate talent that made you good when you got on the platform. Quickly, you realized that if you wanted to be great, you needed to develop your talents into skills. Soon, you heard that real speakers have books. That meant you had to put pen to paper, fingers on a keyboard. I'm a speaker, you thought. This writing stuff should be a breeze. (laughs) Usually not so much. Although speaking and writing are comparable activities, they are not identical. Contrary to one of NSA's oft-repeated urban legends, record a speech, have someone transcribe it, and magically you've got a book, or at least the beginning of a book, it doesn't work that way. Having a book requires developing a writing skill set just like you did with your speaking. Reading about, talking about, and thinking about writing isn't enough. Only writing is writing. These segments aren't about, I want to write, they're going to be about actually writing. In fact, I suggest you get yourself a new notebook. I can hear what you're thinking. What about the muse? When do we talk about her? I need to be inspired before I can write, amateur writers proclaim. Listen to the talented novelist Tom Wolfe. What I write when I force myself, he said, is generally just as good as what I write when I'm feeling inspired. So let's get on with it and write something. Here's your first writing exercise. An exercise is a topic suggestion that you write about for a specific period of time without stopping. Don't stop writing until the time is up. When you can't think of anything to write, you just keep writing. I can't think of anything to write, continuing, this is really stupid. I can't believe she's making us do this. The point is to write. My guess is that you'll be surprised where your writing takes you. Start by creating a list of words that relate to your primary speaking topic. I speak on change, so my list might be like this. Fear, too much, excitement, resentment, leadership afraid of, and so on. Each time you're ready to warm up, turn to a fresh page in your notebook, write your word on the top of the page, set the timer for 10 minutes, and write. Let's be honest about it. Most of you listening to this won't do these exercises. I know it and you know it and that makes me sad because reading about, talking about, and thinking about writing is easier than actually writing. Except, of course, only writing will make you a better writer. You can be a terrific writer if you decide to apply the same energy to writing that you did to speaking. It's been terrific spending time with you. I'd love to hear how your writing skills and attitudes are being shaped by these segments. Drop me an email at chris at change101.com. I'll write you back. Hi, Ford Sakes here, and I've been asked to share quick strategy segments for VOE on how you can monetize your social media networking efforts to grow your business. Each month, I'll reveal specific things that you can do to leverage social media networking sites like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, your blog, and several others. We'll explore those sites in more detail and how to select the right keywords to include in your profiles and postings. In other segments, I'll show you how to leverage your website, syndicate your content, 
which online and desktop tools are best, how to properly use social media to engage your prospects and customers to attract new and repeat business, all in plain English, so you can implement the ideas immediately. Think about your progress with social networking sites so far. Are you spinning your wheels in several different directions without really knowing what or why you're even involved in it? For many listeners, their social media efforts are more like a child in a kitchen banging away on pots and pans. Bang, bang, bang. Well, you know, my goal is to help you transform those efforts from noise to the sweet music of cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. I'd bet many of you would classify your efforts so far with social networking as social not working. It's not working until you engage in conversations, spread your expertise, and most importantly, add value. When that's your focus and you implement the concepts that I'm going to reveal, you'll be well on your way to monetizing your efforts. So what's the one thing you could do this month? Realize that everybody with a Facebook or Twitter account is calling themselves a social media marketing expert, so you've got to be careful. I must receive at least 50 emails each week from people offering all sorts of advice on social media to grow my business. Now, as professional speakers, we're all continual learners, or we wouldn't be NSA members or listening to VOE. And yes, we can learn from everyone. Just make sure you consider the source, check the references, and Google them to see if they have the credibility that you're looking for on the topic. Make sure you claim your accounts at Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and make sure you're working on your blog, preferably a blog as part of your own website. In my future VOE segments, we'll go deeper into how to syndicate, leverage, and use your unique expertise to expand your digital footprint. The next segment we're going to cover will be on selecting the best keywords that you should use in your social media marketing efforts. Okay, this is Ford Sakes reminding you to take action every day on your outbound marketing efforts. Hello, Mike Rayburn here, and this year, for some odd reason, they have asked me to do another series for VOE. You'd think they'd learn their lesson. Two years ago, I loosely focused my series on office and staff, and one might question the wisdom of having a guitarist comedian do that. Anyway, this year, I'm going to be a bit more random, simply sharing some tips, strategies, tools, and philosophies for speakers that will hopefully be helpful. And what better way to start than to address this economy? Most of us, in one way or another, are feeling the negative effects of this difficult time. However, being the contrarian that I am, I want to tell you what I have been sharing these days in my keynotes. There is a good, a very good side to this recession. Okay, what do I mean by that? What does a recession do for us? Number one, recessions teach us to trim the fat. When things are good, especially in America, we have a tendency toward excess. We don't worry about getting the best deal, paying close attention to our finances and whether or not we're making poor financial decisions. We spend frivolously. Tough economic times, by absolute necessity, force us to do just the opposite. Number two, recessions teach us to focus on what's important because we can't afford not to. Since we can't monetarily afford everything, we learn to prioritize our expenditures. Number three, recessions make us work harder and dig deeper. Hey, when things are good, it's easy to get lazy because there's no perceivable consequence to loafing. This recession is making us work harder. Number four, we improve our skills, both our performance skills 
and our sales skills, partially because we have the time to do that. But when resources are in scarcity and there are more people competing for smaller slices of the pie, we're forced to improve ourselves in every way, from our presentations to our sales, everything else. Hey, welcome to Speaker Bootcamp. And number five, finally, recessions reveal what we're really made of. Recessions weed out those who like the idea of being a speaker from those who truly want it. And if we do truly want it, we're going to embrace the previous four points. We're going to trim the fat. We're going to focus on what's important. We're going to work harder and improve our skills. So that's my question to you and to me for what it's worth. Do you really want it? If so, embrace the current times as an opportunity rather than a problem. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next month. So we just finished a really incredible convention in Phoenix, and already uh, many of us are thinking in terms of coming back to Phoenix in November. Ellie Vallis, Fall Conference Chair, is joining us. What is it that, in your mind, makes somebody think, I need to sign up for this next convention, even though I just finished going to one? Jared, I think the real opportunity is to build on what you learned at the convention and be able to move from knowing it to doing it. Now, that's, that's an interesting finesse there because a couple of years ago, they started restructuring how the conferences and, and, and conventions are done to emphasize more learning. Tell me a little bit about that model and why somebody walks away doing more rather than just having a bunch of inspirational knowledge. Well, I think that we all need to be motivated, but we really need to grow our businesses by using that information and by giving the opportunity for longer sessions. We have a day-long intensive marketing and marketability session with Jane Atkinson to really get a deep dive into it's not just the basics that you might get in a concurrent or a or, or an, a, a keynote, but really how to market, how to grow your business. We have two mega sessions: one on humor with Avish Parashar um, on how to be funny, even if you're not. Your topic is very serious in nature, a business topic, for instance. Still need to make it humorous and lighten it up a little bit. Karen Cortell Reisman has a wonderful keynote, Letters from Einstein, and she'll be presenting a session on platform skills and developing your keynote. Again, how to do it. And she's actually going to ask for participants to come up and share their signature stories so that she can help develop them and coach them to improvement. Well, now's the time to start thinking about constantly growing your business rather than just getting that once-a-year shot in the arm. If you're interested in signing up for the November uh, conference, where do you go to get information? You go to the NSA website, nsaspeaker.org. I will be there in November. Hope to see all of you there. In keeping with our theme, Imagine, one of our challenges at VOE this year was when we tried to imagine how we might add a segment on humor. And somewhere in Orlando, in a conversation I was having with Ron Culbertson, David Glickman, and President Phil Van Hooser, we conceived and imagined what it would be like if we took a dozen of NSA's funniest people and put them together at the summer convention for a live comedy night, a night that we called a Night of a Thousand Starfish. And the idea behind this was that each one of them would tell their own twisted version of the much maligned and made fun of starfish story. It's probably the most often and poorly told and, well, most often plagiarized story in the history of speaking. 
How did it go? Well, it went something like this. The night of a thousand starfish is meant to celebrate a story that has been plagiarized and bastardized throughout the speaking profession. For those of you who have been part of NSA for a while, you know that if you want to laugh at NSA, you simply go up to the big stage and in the middle of one of your comments go, or the starfish story, and everybody goes, good. You guys are good at that. If you're new to NSA, the starfish story is a story that first started being told by motivational speakers years ago and was copied by many others. It was inspired by a 16-page essay. And according to the ultimate source of good information, Wikipedia, <laughs> Lauren Isley, an anthropologist and poet, first wrote this 16-page essay, at which time a motivational speaker by the name of Joel Barker. Anyone know Joel? Joel claims to be the one who turned it from the 16-page essay to the starfish story. I wrote to Joel, we spoke by email, we did not tweet. <laughs> spoke to Joel, Joel said he first did it in 1974 for St. Paul Academy graduation. If you've never heard the starfish story, <laughs> you need to understand that we have invited a dozen of NSA's funniest people to perform their own demented story of the starfish story tonight. If you've ever seen the, uh, the program, The Aristocrats, anyone ever see The Aristocrats? This will be a slightly cleaner version of The Aristocrats. And it's either gonna be really funny or really bad. But we're gonna find out in a minute. But for those of you who don't know the story, Let's put it in context for just a moment. If we could have silence, please. There was an old man who liked to walk the beach every morning before he would begin his riding. And on this one morning as he was walking, off in the distance, along the beach, he saw what he thought was a dancer. So he hastened his pace. And, and as he got closer, he realized it wasn't a dancer at all but it was a young man. And as he got closer, he realized the young man was picking up starfish off the beach and tossing them back into the ocean. He asked the young man, what are you doing? And the young man said, well, I'm throwing starfish into the ocean. And the old man said, perhaps I should have asked, why are you throwing starfish into the ocean? The young boy says, well, last night there was a storm and the starfish washed ashore. And now the tide is going out and the sun is rising and the heat will kill the starfish unless I throw them back into the water. Promised I wasn't gonna cry. <laughs> At that, the young man was told by the older man, the older gentleman said, son, there are miles of beach and thousands of starfish. Surely you can't make a difference. And the young man bent down. <laughs> and picked up one 
more starfish and threw it into the ocean. And then he said, it made a difference to that one. However, marine biologists that I spoke to just yesterday. <clears throat> well, enough with that. So we invited some of the funniest people in NSA to take the starfish story and turn it into their own twisted story. Unfortunately, they couldn't be here, but... In their place, we have an incredible second string. Let's give it up for the second string. kick things off for us this evening, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brian Walter. All right. The starfish story as retold by Brian Walter. Once upon a time, there was an old retired marine biologist who had a habit of walking on the beach early each morning. One day he saw a young man in his early 20s picking up starfish and throwing them back into the ocean. As the biologist came closer, he called out, Good morning, young man. May I ask what you're doing with those starfish? In a voice sounding suspiciously like Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> of course, sir, he said. The sun is up and the tide is going out. If I don't throw them in, they'll die. Upon hearing this, the retired biologist said, but young man, these are all female starfish. They're coming ashore to lay their eggs. You're not helping them. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're dying, said the young man nervously, and I'm saving them. No, you're messing with nature. The biologist said, what do you think's happening here? This is a perfectly nice day. There's been no storm, no hurricane. Do you really believe that thousands of starfish suddenly decided that today was a good day to die? <laughs> it, it could happen, said the agitated young man. No, it couldn't, kid. Look, the science of this is all wrong. It sounds like something you read on the internet. <laughs> Starfish have thrived for millions of years. That wouldn't be true if they committed mass suicide every time the tide went out. <laughs> Son, what's really going on here? The young man said, okay, you want the truth, old man? Yes, I think I do. Do you want the truth? Yes, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> when I was seven years old, I had a goldfish named Mr. Squirtle. I loved Mr. Squirtle, and for five years he was my best friend until my sister bought me a starfish. They're so cute, she said. Well, it's a little-known fact that starfish are meat-eaters. That's right. Little five-armed carnivores. So one morning I wake up, and all that's left of Mr. Squirtle is a large floating orange dorsal fin. From that day on, my life motto became, All starfish must die. I didn't have much luck at first. I would go into tide pools and stab them with my pocket knife, but starfish don't have blood. But then I tried snapping off their little arms, you know, but you know what? They grow back. And then each of the broken off arms grows into another freaking starfish. 
Eventually, I figured out that the only natural enemy of the starfish is the shark. They crunch those babies down like caramel corn. So every morning for the last eight years, I come here to this very beach in Monterey where they film the movie Jaws, and I look for starfish trying to make it to the shore to lay their eggs, and I throw them into the surf as free Happy Meals for the sharks. I am the self-appointed roadblock in the starfish circle of life. You hear me? That's what I was doing yesterday. That's what I'm doing now. And that's what I'll be doing tomorrow. So there you go, old man. Now you know the truth. But son, the biologist softly replied, each female starfish can lay 1.5 million eggs. No matter how many starfish you feed to the sharks, the species won't ever become endangered. You can't possibly make a difference. There's too many to kill. <laughs> At this, the young man reached down. <laughs> picked up a starfish in his hand and chucked it into the mouth of a shark about 30 yards offshore. And he said, oh, it made a difference to that one. <laughs> I'm gonna be a speaking star Cause a star is born And a star is warm But a star never ever seems to last After all, most stars will fall star Helping pull this whole starfish thing together is David Glickman and Ron Culberson, uh, S, no T. And uh, Let's talk a little bit about that performance that Brian did. What stands out in your mind about the genius of how he uh, made the story his own? You know, one of the things, if you've ever watched Brian perform at the convention or in, in the work that he does, um, the amount of pre-work and research that he does is phenomenal because he tailors everything to the audience. And so he just carried that technique over in a different way to this where he researched the concept of the starfish, the biological concepts that that none of us probably know. And then he integrated it in a very funny way in the telling of the story. And that just that just goes to show the power of getting information and then taking that information and playing with it. And it's funny, in speaking with Brian afterwards, uh, I was telling him how I thought it was interesting about the science. He said, well, not all of that science was accurate. He said, I just <laughs> went with the science theme. He, you know, I did some initial research, but for the purposes of humor, he made it work. We didn't know what was true and what wasn't true. Thirty-five percent of all statistics are made up. Right. <laughs> exactly. So that was that was part of the brilliance. If people don't know the science, uh, and just like he referenced Wikipedia, just the name Wikipedia will get a laugh from yep. any audience. Yeah. And you pull out a printout in your hand and start reading from it, uh, <laughs> you can derive a lot of humor from research materials. And along the same lines, I've written articles before where I've made up words. And I make it so that the word sounds funny so that most of the people who are going to read it or realize it's a make-up, made-up word. But it is based on real words. And it's the research of the real words that lead to the funny word. And that's, that's what Brian does over and over and over again. Joining us now is our 2009-2010 NSA president, Phil Van Hooser. And Phil, I've, I've heard you describe yourself when it comes to speaking as kind of being a journeyman. 
I think that's fair, and I have said that in the past on occasion. And I don't mean to use that term in any kind of derogatory term. As a matter of fact, I think it's a term of affection to some degree or another because I think our association is made up of journeymen and journeywomen who uh, have had a love for speaking, have committed themselves to developing that craft over time, and have made a good living from it. I am a product of NSA. Now, almost 22 years as a member, I, most of what I've learned and much of what I've earned in this business I can attribute directly to my association and affiliation with NSA or people that I've met and established relationships with NSA. So as a journeyman, that means I've come from somewhere to where I am and I've still got a lot, lot further to go and I think that's reminiscent of a lot of our, our fellow brothers and sisters in this business. When you talk a lot about a lot further to go, that really fits with the theme this year, which is imagine. You know, imagine where you're going to be tomorrow. Imagine where you'll be a year from now, 10 years from now. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the theme imagine and, and how you see it playing out in our lives this year. Well, first of all, I like the word imagine. I think it's a positive word. I think it's a, a word full of possibilities. I think it's a forward-thinking word. And as a result, I think it conjures up lots of uh, positive images that we can focus on. But the, where the word came from, and more specifically where the theme with the use of the word came from, I was really struggling several months ago trying to find this grandiose theme that everybody would just leap to their feet and throw rose petals in, in my path as I walk by. Well, okay, so maybe I'm a, an optimist to the nth degree here. But uh, it just wasn't coming to me. I wasn't finding that theme that, frankly, I was looking for. And, and so I was having a conversation with now past president Sam Silverstein, and I mentioned to him, I said, I'm really struggling with this theme a little bit. Uh, can you give me any help? Well, he said, I, I can't tell you what the theme is. He said, I had trouble with that myself. He said, but I do remember having a thought while I was formulating my theme, and that thought was, wonder how it would be to use a one-word theme. And so I started thinking about that, and I played with all kinds of words that I thought might work, and I threw this, this idea out to one of my team members, uh, Mark Mayberry who's serving this year as the meeting and conventions chair. And I, I said to Mark, Mark, I'm thinking about a one-word one word theme. Can you give me any help? He said, I'm not very good at themes either, but I'll think about it. Well, a couple of days later, Mark came back to me and he said, Phil, I'm still not sure this works, but there's just this one word that she just keeps coming back to me again and again, and that word is imagine. Well. I won't say that fireworks went off and bluebirds started singing, Jared, but uh, that word resonated with me. Because at this point in time, both from a historical perspective in our world, from a historical perspective in our association, I think the word imagine gives us an indication of something that's positive, something that's possible, something that's forward thinking, and something that can be built upon. What I might imagine could be critically important to me, and yet you're imagining something totally different, and it be equally important to you. We are made up of more than 3,500 members in the United States alone and more than 5,000 members worldwide. 
And I just wonder what people are imagining now, imagining about their future, imagining about their possibilities, imagining about their potential, imagining about the impact that they can have on an audience. For me, the word just holds limitless possibilities. And for that, in essence, that is how I see our association, an association that holds limitless possibilities for all of us if we can simply imagine. Phil Van Hooser, thanks for being with us. We look forward to talking to you next month. Jared, I'm excited. Thank you very much. I'm excited about all that there is to imagine. As we wrap up this edition of Voices of Experience, I hope your imagination is running wild because you heard just one great pearl of wisdom while listening today. Just one thought that has sparked your imagination, that has you dreaming about the next baby step, or the next giant leap that you'll take in your speaking career. As speakers, we all have the luxury of making our lives and our careers anything that we want them to be. All you have to do is open your mind to the endless possibilities that await you. The first thing that you have to do is imagine. For Voices of Experience, I'm Jarrett Bro. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.